Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, award-winning journalist and USA Today's Washington bureau chief, Susan Page. She talks about her biographies of the influential former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, and former First Lady Barbara Bush. Currently, Page is working on a biography of Barbara Walters, the highly regarded broadcast journalist who passed away in December 2022. Page's book about Walters will be published by Simon & Schuster either later this year or in early 2024. For this podcast episode, Susan Page was interviewed by fellow biographer John, better known as Jack, Farrell. Susan, you're the author of two biographies of Barbara Bush and uh, Nancy Pelosi, and with an upcoming biography of the great newswoman Barbara Walters. So give us a little trace as to how you made this leap from a journalist to the top echelons of women biographers. Jack, I have to say you were an inspiration because, of course, when I met you, you were just a working reporter like me, and you did the remarkable biography of Tip O'Neill, and then you were off to the races as a biographer, uh, leaving behind your newspaper career. I've, I've not been willing quite to leave that behind. You know, I still have a day job at USA Today. But these biographies has been so interesting and so rewarding. It's like learning a whole new set of muscles. USA Today has given me a halftime leave. So I work halftime at USA Today and halftime on these book projects. And it's been such a great pleasure. And what drew you to do it? Was it the economic difficulties of the newspaper business? Was this uh, secret ambition nurtured in the plains of Kansas? So, uh, you know, I had covered 11 presidential campaigns and seven presidential administrations. And I felt like I pretty much knew how to do that. I mean, Donald Trump did test some of that when he took office of slightly different enterprise than had been with previous presidents. But one of the things that really drew me to writing a book was I didn't know if I could do it. I sort of stumbled my way into it. I had advice from some great people and it's like fun. Like I'm, I was at the bio conference attending online and really getting nuts and bolts advice about how to do basic things. It's like the second chance at a career that's related, but a little different from working for a newspaper. And, you know, Jack, one of the things that has really struck me about this community of biographers is the willingness to help one another. You know that is not invariably the case with newspapers, (laughs) that often the spirit of competition is stronger than the spirit of cooperation. But you were among the people I turned to when I was just beginning to work on my first book. And we sat at a Starbucks and you gave me just an enormous amount of very helpful advice. So thank you. You're welcome. Of course, I'm glad it worked out so well. Maybe I can start claiming credit as a a teacher. (laughs) So your first choice was a first lady, Barbara Bush. Was she someone that in covering the Bush administrations that you had got to know? Did they reach out to you? How did she become your first subject? 
So I got an agent, which was step number one. And I was meeting with my agent and his business partner. And we were talking about books I might be able to do. I wanted to do a book about something I had some basis of knowledge for, but that had been long enough ago to get some new archival information, interviews with people who might now be more candid than they were at the time. And so we were really looking at the Bush administration because I covered both Bush administrations. And I had some ideas that my agents thought were terrible. And one of my agents <laughs> said, what about Barbara Bush? I had interviewed Barbara Bush over the years, covering the White House, covering the campaigns that she was involved in. I thought she was most different in private from her image in public. And I thought that could make for an interesting story. So I did something that at the time I wasn't sure was smart, but I signed a contract to write a biography of Barbara Bush without talking to the Bush people, with having no arrangement with her that she would cooperate because I thought if she said no, maybe I'd chicken out. And if she said yes, maybe she would think she had some control over what I would write. And I really wanted to do a work of journalism, not an authorized biography. So I signed the contract and I sent her this letter <laughs> that said, hello, Mrs. Bush, remember me? I've signed a contract with 12 books, part of Hachette, to write your biography. Will you let me interview you? And I was enormously relieved when a couple of days later, she responded that she would, you know, I sent simultaneously letters to George W. Bush and Jeb Bush, two of her sons, both of whom I had covered, saying, I'm embarking on this project about your mother, and I hope you will encourage her to cooperate, and I hope that you'll cooperate with me and let me interview you. And in about 30 seconds after sending this email to Jeb Bush, he emailed me back saying, does mother know? <laughs> <laughs> and that was immediately became an anecdote for the book. Everything is fodder for the book. Yeah. So uh, Barbara Bush gave me one interview, and then a second, and then a third, and in the end, I had five interviews with her in Houston, her home in Houston. These are during the final six months of her life. She was terminally ill, as, as she knew. And I was actually in Texas to do a sixth interview that had been scheduled when she fell out of her bed, broke her back, went into the hospital, never recovered. Uh, well, how do you deal with that racing <laughs> clock? You know, I think it made her willing to just be completely open. I could not believe one story in particular. She told me during that very first interview, I think it made her think, why not answer every question I dared to ask? What's the downside? You know, we knew that the end was near. But I'd ask at the first interview if I could have some access to her diaries. You know, she kept voluminous diaries almost her entire adult life, which are in big boxes in the basement of the George H.W. Bush Library in College Station. And she said no in the first interview. And I came back later in the interview saying, how about just this area? This area, I think you wouldn't feel sensitive about, and I could look at your diaries for that. And she said she'd think about it, which I thought meant no. And as I was leaving after the fifth interview, the last time I talked to her, she said, you know, I've been thinking about your request and you can see my diaries. You can see all of them. And I had exactly the wrong response. I said, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of access. And she said, yes. And, you know, I do not think she would have given me access to her diaries, which is just an enormous gift, unless she knew that her own end was near. Yeah. Did the overall experience ignite more enthusiasm or was it 
something that you walked away from and said, been there, done that? <laughs> because I, I, there was a big gap between my first and second book. Why did you wait? You know, as you know, journalism, is just, newspapering is just so much fun. And I'd been doing it for so long that I really hesitated towards making the leap and just doing books. And it wasn't really until the crisis, uh, the newspapers went through when they lost all their classified ads and started losing circulation to the internet, that sort of a light went off that, hey, this might be you know more than just a, a hobby. This could be the, the saving grace. So anyway, so right away, did you know you wanted to do another book? So I, I finished the Barbara Bush book, but it hasn't come out yet. And my agent said, you know, you should do another book. And I thought, I so want to do another book. All right. You know, you do so much more research than you could possibly do for a newspaper story. I feel like no one knows more about Barbara Bush or Nancy Pelosi than I do. And soon no one will know more about Barbara Walters than I do. I feel like with a biography, if you do it right, you produce something that will stand the test of time. It will be valuable. It's got a permanence that newspapers just don't have. I love working for newspapers. I still work for a newspaper and I'm grateful for the opportunity. But doing books is different. So I had signed a contract to do the second book before the first book was out. And when we finished the second book on Nancy Pelosi, I wanted to take a little bit of a break. But the subject I wanted to do was also elderly and frail. And so I felt I had to get going on Barbara Walters. But after this one, I'm definitely taking a break. <laughs> was there something in... Um... You know, way back in your childhood that led you to books? Was, was your house one of those houses that's just filled with books? Our house was filled with books. Uh, my mother went to the library every week and checked out books that she would then read. My dad was a lawyer and a businessman in Wichita, Kansas, where I was born and raised. My mother had been a music teacher and then became a serious golfer, but Ooh. a big reader always. I had two older brothers and a younger sister. And I loved books. I read a lot of books. Partly that's because we never went anywhere and did anything. Uh, so I was born in Wichita. And when I went to college, I went to Northwestern. And when my parents took me to Northwestern in Chicago, in Evanston, to start my freshman year, it was the first time I had spent a night outside the state of Kansas. <laughs> so my horizons have really been expanded by going to school by working for newspapers and now by working on books. Hey, you're going to be president of Paramount Pictures. This <laughs> is going to keep going on. Okay, so you chose another very strong woman with uh, something of a crusty reputation when it came to folks asking her difficult questions in Nancy Pelosi, one of the 21st centuries and probably 20th centuries most dynamic woman politician, a, a woman who's known for uh, laying down the law to colleagues, both male and female in the house, and somebody with a really long history in hard-nosed politics. <laughs> Not an easy subject to approach. How did you do that? Did you uh, interview Pelosi for your books? Yes. Yes, I did. For, and how did you find her on Tipo Nail? Did you find her perceptive and helpful, or was she reserved? We had an old saying in Boston, which is that he'll never tell you that your coat is on fire. Yeah. <laughs> and she was a little bit like that. I mean, she was polite. She had wonderful, sweet things to say about both Tip and Ted. Well, here's what appealed to me about Pelosi. I'd interviewed her a couple of times. I did the same thing I did with Barbara Bush in that I signed a contract before asking if she would cooperate. But thank goodness she did agree to cooperate. I actually had 10 interviews with her for the hardcover. And then 
an 11th interview before the paperback came out. And, you know, Pelosi is opaque. Like Barbara Bush turned out to be transparent. Pelosi is the reverse. She is a very tough person to interview. She is really disciplined. She has no qualms about repeating the same talking points you have heard before. And she's reserved. She lacks that, you know, like somebody like Bill Clinton or Bernie Sanders, if you ask them the question in the right way, you can hit a button and they'll be spontaneous. And that is a hard button to find with Nancy Pelosi. But the reason I wanted to do a biography of Pelosi was, number one, there was no good biography of Pelosi, which I thought was a crime. And of course, she is in history because she's the first woman speaker. She was the highest ranking woman in the history of the United States, the most powerful woman in the history of the U.S. government, even to this day. But what is remarkable to me is that she is one of the most powerful speakers of the House in the history of the United States, one of the most effective legislative leaders that we have ever had. I would argue, and you might disagree, the most effective speaker since Sam Rayburn. And that, I thought, got lost with the label that she was the first woman. So in this book, my goal was a little different than in the Barbara Bush book, because Barbara Bush's story was a very personal one. And, you know, she was powerful in the way women traditionally have been powerful by being married to somebody who's powerful, although she used that power to enormous ends. Pelosi is powerful in the way men have always been powerful, which is she ran for office. She won office. She developed coalitions among her her caucus. She seized power. That's her number one lesson of power. And she has wielded power with about as much effectiveness as anybody in our history. So that was the story I wanted to tell in that book. Well, it's kind of funny you say that because I always thought they should name a building after Tip. But if they came to me now and said, you know, we're going to name a, a building after another speaker, who would it be? I would have to say Pelosi. I think that she's just been uh, just a spectacular American leader. And one of the things I'm proud about in the Pelosi book is that I found this unbelievable story that was not previously known. You know, when Scott Brown won Ted Kennedy's Senate seat in that special election in Massachusetts, which cost Democrats their filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, There were a lot of Democrats who thought that meant the big version of the Affordable Care Act was dead. And among those was Rahm Emanuel, the White House chief of staff at that point. He'd gone through the Clinton healthcare experience. He knew it could be really damaging politically. He and others thought, we have to do something small. Let's do a children's health initiative. Let's not kill ourselves by going big. It can't be done. And Pelosi's view was, you don't get many chances to do something big. So if you've got a chance, you should go for it. And they had a meeting at the White House in the, in the Oval Office soon after that special election in Massachusetts. And Pelosi was there and Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, and uh, President Obama and Rahm Emanuel. And Rahm was going on about, we have to do something small. We can't get something big. It won't work for us. We'll use up all our capital. And so Pelosi then says, you know, that's fine. You can go for something smaller, but I won't be with you. You want to pass something small, you'll need to do it yourself. But if you want to do something big, that I'll get through the house. That we can pass. And this was the baldest of hardball I've ever heard a legislator do to a president. Because she basically cut off 
Obama's exit ramp. There was no way he'd get even a small one through the house. What is he going to get through the house without the speaker supporting him? She was saying, you're going to go bigger. You're just going to admit defeat. So Obama said that he was with her and they decided at that meeting that they would go big and to the surprise of Rahm Emanuel and many other people in town, she got the Senate version of the Affordable Care Act through the House. It became law, still law today, more popular now than it was even on the day it passed. Yeah. And uh, talk just a little bit about how she manages to keep unity in her caucus, while at the same time, the Republicans were ideologically split and fighting amongst themselves. And Boehner could never bring a, a full caucus to the table because he had his Tea Party Republicans and the other Republicans. And yet Nancy Pelosi, to a great extent, even when she was not speaker and, and would show up with all her Democrats, except maybe one or two. Was it her fun, <laughs> fundraising prowess? Were they afraid they'd get a lecture? I mean, what was it? So John Bresnahan, when he was working for Politico, he did a profile of Pelosi that described her as an iron fist in a Gucci glove. (laughs) That is the best description of Pelosi I've ever heard because she does have a velvet glove in that she can raise money for you. She can let you go on a congressional delegation to some exotic foreign land. She can give you a spot on the committee that you wanna be on. But she also has an iron fist and she displayed both of those characteristics in getting the Affordable Care Act passed. She used the Iron Fist even against members who knew, she knew and they knew this was going to cost them their seat. Right. But she said to them, we didn't come here to keep a job. We came here to do a job. Yeah. So what was your strategy to get past the opaqueness of Nancy Pelosi and did it work? Occasionally. You know, she never like I never got her to burst into tears. Uh, there was no big secret, uh, she told me, but the 10th interview was much better than the first interview. And some of the interviews, you know, these interviews would be scheduled long in advance. Some of them happened to be on big days when things were happening. And that was always very helpful because then she would be kind of all warmed up by whatever that day's crisis was. Did you get any feedback from her after the book was published? When I got the first copies of the book before the pub date, I inscribed one and I sent it to her to thank her for having cooperated with me and having also not told others not to cooperate with me. Uh, That had been very important. Yeah. And then I called the deputy chief of staff with whom I'd been dealing to say, what'd she think about the book? And he said, quote, she's too busy to read it. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you find that credible that you've given 10 interviews to somebody who has spent two years writing a book, exploring your personal life and your family life and your political history, and you're too busy to read it. So I thought that was a dodge. So she gave me no formal response to the book. But then I put in a request for another interview and she gave it to me. And I took that as meaning she at least thought the book had been fair. But she did not send me an effusive thank you note for my wonderful biography of her. She, I guess I to get the sense that she doesn't send out effusive thank you notes, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, she did one thing last week, which is I won a journalism award and she sent me one of her signature white orchids with a congratulatory note. Oh, that's great. Um, And then now you're looking at somebody who I'm going to guess is going to try to be at least opaque in Barbara Walters, or Mm -hmm. am I wrong? You know, Barbara Walters is pretty on the transparent side. And I think that's part of her appeal. You know, she's pretty forceful. She's very ambitious. She has qualities that can sometimes put people off, but what you see is what you get. And she's in very poor health. 
I've not been able to interview her. I understood that going into this project, but there are a gazillion interviews that Barbara Walters did over the years, many of them on video. She did thousands of interviews herself of other people. Some of those are really illuminating too. You know, every book has been a little different. The challenge has been a little different for each one. The challenge for this one is I'm not interviewing the subject herself, but there's this great asset of all these archives of Barbara Walters interviews, interviews she gave and interviews she did. Now, was the process the same? You just sat down with your agents and looked around for somebody that you might (laughs) do a biography of? Well, pretty much. I wanted to do something a little different. So I had done a first lady who was a Republican, a legislative leader who was a Democrat. So the idea of doing a female journalist was appealing to me. And like the other two women I've done books on, I feel like she hasn't gotten her due. There's no good biography of Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters' career spans the golden age of television news. She was a huge innovator. She was a groundbreaker as a woman, but she was also a groundbreaker in terms of the kinds of interviews she thought were important to do in terms of creating the view, which 25 years later is still going strong. So with all these women, I sort of feel like they deserve more attention than they've gotten. Yeah. Again, that was initiated by you with your advisors rather than the publisher coming to you and saying, you know, Barbara will cooperate with a book or whatever. Yeah, none of that. It wasn't suggested by a publisher and it wasn't suggested by people around the subject. At the bio panel that we both served on, somebody said something very interesting, which is I never want to do a book where I have to do interviews of live people. Because <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Even just getting them to sit down, getting the time to, to do it is hard. Have you ever thought that it would be a blessing to do like Susan Anthony or somebody else from the past? I love doing interviews. I mean, I think that's like the best thing. And it, with Barbara Walters, I've interviewed a ton of people who knew her and worked with her and socialized with her. And I think that's the best part. I would not want to do somebody who was so far in the past that you couldn't interview somebody who knew them. Although I have to say, one of the best interviews I've done about Barbara Walters was was Richard Wald, who was the head of NBC News and then the head of ABC News and just a giant of a figure in journalism, passed away last week. I spent time with him last fall in New York, 92 years old, sharp as a tack, had fantastic Barbara Walters stories. Bob Weston, also one of her producers at the Today Show in her very early days, I interviewed him a couple months ago. He's also passed away. So the best piece of advice I saw in the bio panel was interview old people first. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but true. Tell me a little bit about your writing process. Do you already have a theme for the book in mind, or do you sort of let the theme evolve from the research as you go along? It's been a little different with each one. With Barbara Bush, I had written basically the whole book before I realized what the theme was. And then I reorganized the book to reflect the theme, which was this enormous effect uh, the death of her three-year-old daughter had on her when she was a young mother. And with Barbara Walters, I did a couple months of interviews and research and rather quickly identified what I thought was the theme. And that's been very helpful in terms of figuring out who you need to talk to and what you need to read about. But, you know, I do couple months of research. And then I start setting goals for myself for how many words I would write in a month. And the idea for me is I can't wait till I'm finished reporting. I will never be finished reporting. But when I feel like I've got critical mass for a chapter or for a passage, I'll write it and see how it stands up and how much more work it needs and what else I need to do. So I report and 
write simultaneously. And then when I get to the very end, obviously I'm doing more, mostly writing, although you never really stop reporting. There are always people you want to talk to who you haven't reached. You think maybe if I just pass one more time. Yeah. Uh, there is a fierce group of biographers who really put their own analysis and imprint on a story. Does it help, do you think, in the end to be a journalist turned biographer and bringing those standards? Or, or do you feel somewhat limited when it's time to do analysis and make judgments because we were trained for so many years mm-hmm. not to? Well, you know, that was one of the things I had to learn. Like I did the Barbara Bush book and Halfway through, you know, I, I realized I should not continually ask other people what they thought about what this meant, because no one knew as much about what had happened <laughs> that I did. And I became more and more comfortable with just being the authority and not needing to put it in somebody else's mouth or have a footnote for a conclusion I've drawn. It's my conclusion. And I've gotten more comfortable with that with each book. And I also think people are not, they're interested in Barbara Walters, not in me, or they're interested in Nancy Pelosi, not in me. But I have included a little more about the process. In the Pelosi book, I included more than I did with the Barbara Bush book about what it was like to go see her, uh, the ways in which she was intimidating. You know, there might be something funny that happened. I've been a little more comfortable with letting people see how we got where we are in this book. And I think that that's engaging, or at least I hope that's engaging. Which do you enjoy more, the research or the writing? You can't write without research, right? What I most enjoy is writing when I have a ton of research. (laughs) Do you have anybody read your manuscript besides your editor at the end? So I've really been struggling with this. And that was actually a question I put in one of the chats at the bio conference, (laughs) because I'm trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, because I'm very nervous about letting people see it before it's published, because in each case, I have some news, right? Some things I don't want to get out until it gets out with the book. On the other hand, I think the book would be better if it got some feedback. And so my husband reads it, but he does things like, you know, you have this date wrong. Yeah, yeah. That guy wasn't the same, right? He's not, he doesn't get kind of the sweep that I'm looking for. I have a, a good friend, Mimi Hall, who um, acts as a reader, and that's, she's been good. I'd, I'd sort of like to get a couple more people as readers, but The idea of sending chapters out, I don't feel like I want to do that. It makes me nervous about disclosure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So now a lightning round. Do you begin to write chronologically with chapter one, though? What do I know the most about? I'll write that chapter. Uh And do you do long, comprehensive outlines? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I stumble from one to another. I do not have a master plan. If I'm hit by a bus, no one will ever be able to pick up a project I've done. Um, do you read other biographers' work for insight on style, or are you afraid that if you read every volume of Caro on Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> that you'll be become a sort of a Caro wannabe? I've always read a lot of biographies. I love biographies. But in these past couple of years where I've been writing biographies, it's not that I feel like they'll affect my style. It's that I just don't feel I have time. Have you come across any writing tips of your own you know, the best, fastest, cleanest, most perceptive writing I do is like from 3 to 7 a.m. Wow. You get up at three o'clock in the morning. Well, not every day. But what I mean is when I get up and I've been thinking about what I need to do or what I want to do, and I can get up early and have a stretch where no one is, you know, tugging at my coat, that is the best time. 
Okay, let me ask you this one last question, Susan. What was the effect of the COVID pandemic on your career as a book writer? You know, it made it harder because I couldn't go out and interview people. An in-person interview is always better than an interview on Zoom. And it also, you were, weren't you sad about COVID and worried about the world? Uh, oh, yeah. I'm glad that COVID is hopefully under some better control now. That was journalist and author Susan Page, speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell. Page's forthcoming biography of Barbara Walters will be published by Simon & Schuster, either later this year or in early 2024. This interview was recorded via Zoom on May 16, 2022. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.